hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Let's take a minute and pray before our message this morning. Dear Father, we come to you now and submit ourselves to the authority of your word. And Lord, we are just weak and fallible human beings. We lack wisdom, we lack understanding, and so we need your spirit to help us today. Lord, we need to know what you want to teach us from your word. Father, it is your purpose that we are here, and we want to fulfill your purpose in being here. And so just use this time to teach us the things that are important that you want us to understand. Lord, I'm just a weak and fallible human being as well, and so your word can only be proclaimed as you help me, as your spirit gives me utterance, as I am filled with your spirit, as you give me strength and wisdom to speak. Lord, we want to hear from you today, and so we all submit ourselves to you during this time in worship and praise and being ready to hear what you have for us of the truth. And so, Father, do your work now, we pray. May your spirit be among us and accomplish his work in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in chapter 9, we began the fifth and sixth seals. We went over the fifth seal. I'm sorry, the the fifth trumpet judgment. We're in the trumpet judgments here in Revelation chapter 9. In chapter 8, we saw the seventh seal being opened, and then out of the seventh seal came the trumpet judgments. We saw the first four in chapter 8 where God attacked the economy and the ecosystems of the world. And then as we got to the fifth trumpet judgment last week, we saw the, the shift go from nature to the spirit world. And that's where Satan was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and out of it issued forth a great cloud of smoke. And then out of the smoke came a great horde of locusts. Now, these locusts is what John described them as, but in essence, they were demons that were bound in the pit from some time in history where God had put them there. And the focus here is a, an all-out demonic attack on the world. Now, it's not just a haphazard happening of Satan and his demons. This is purposed by God. And that's hard to understand where we look at this and we say, well, God looses demons upon the earth to do basically what they want when he's fighting against them in the grand scheme of evil versus good? And the answer to that is yes. It doesn't make sense to us necessarily from our perspective. 
But God uses even these demonic attacks upon the earth to accomplish his purpose. We saw Ephesians chapter 6 that tells us that we are to put on the whole armor of God because our enemy is not man. It's not flesh and blood. We fight against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6.12 tells us. So our battle is not against each other. It's not against the culture. It's not against society. It's not against government. It is against evil which exists in Satan and his demons, which are loosed upon the earth. Many of them at this point where we are in history are bound, and we are seeing them loosed in the Great Tribulation to serve God's purpose. And that's what we have to keep in mind here. This is all part of God's judgment. And so as we see, as John did, these demonic attacks, we have to remember that God is still in control. God commands even demons and controls them to accomplish his purpose. Now, it may not seem like that to us, but God is still in control. We have to believe that. We have to have faith that no matter what happens on this earth, that God is still in control. And there's a reason why he allows it. And so as we saw in chapter 9 last week, He unleashed this swarm of demons out of the pit, and they come and they torment men for five months. Now, they don't kill them. God commands them specifically, you cannot kill them. And so they cannot, even if they wanted to, kill men. But they have the power to torment them physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It's an extreme anguish that they bring upon mankind. And it says in verse 6 of chapter 9 that men are so tormented that they will want to die. They will seek death, and yet it will be held from them. That's how bad this torment is that God allows to happen on earth at the hand of demonic forces. Men will want to die to escape, but God will not let them die. Even if they try to take their lives, God will not let them take their lives. Because this is God's judgment, and they cannot escape God's judgment, even through death. So John describes the appearance of the demonic forces, and we saw that last week. Horses prepared for battle, heads on their heads, crowns of gold, faces like men, hair like women, teeth like that of lions, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings like the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they're inescapable. They're indestructible. They cannot be stopped. They cannot be run from Anybody who's on the earth at this point who has not the seal of God in their foreheads, who is not a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ, will be tormented for five months. And then in verse 11, we saw that they had a king over them. Not Satan necessarily, a king called Abaddon or Apollyon. Abaddon in the Hebrew, Apollyon in the Greek, both of them mean the destroyer. And their purpose is to destroy mankind. God will not let them kill them at this point, but they are there to destroy them in every other way possible. And no one will escape. The fact that John uses the Greek and the Hebrew words means that these demonic attacks will be upon Jews as well as Gentiles. There's nobody on the earth that will be able to escape them. And then in verse 12, the angel says, One woe is past. Behold, there come two woes more hereafter. And the the message there is this. We've seen the ecosystems of the world basically compromised and much of it destroyed through the first four trumpets. The fifth trumpet unleashes this hordes of demons that torment men physically, emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise. 
You can't escape them. Five months of this, how could it get worse? And it does get worse. Because this is God's judgment upon sin. And we underestimate the severity of sin, and so we underestimate the severity of God's judgment. And here it's being poured out upon the, on the world in its fullness. And so as we get to verse 13, we come to the sixth trumpet. And in the sixth trumpet, we see the sixth angel sounding, and then the voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. It gives this angel instructions. Now, this voice comes from between the four horns of the golden altar. This golden altar is the altar that we've seen already. It is the altar of incense that sits before the throne of God. Remember, we've seen it already where the prayers of the saints have been offered up on it with incense. And they go up before God in the throne room of God off of this altar. So this is where prayers are offered. And we see by this symbol here, this altar, the voice coming from the altar, that this judgment that's about to be poured out is again in answer to the prayers of God's people. Remember, we saw several times prayers of saints going through the tribulation for deliverance, for God to have vengeance upon his enemies, to avenge their, their deaths, to avenge the wickedness that's being perpetuated on the earth. It's in answer to those prayers that God pours out this judgment. And the voice must be the voice of God. We can assume this because this is God giving the instruction, the authority. Whether it's the voice of God specifically, we don't know, but the command is God's command. And it says that it instructs the angel that is about or that is blowing the trumpet here. In verse 14, saying, The sixth angel which had the trumpet loosed the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now, I want to make a point about this altar, one one more thing about it. This altar is an altar, and, and they have, or they had at least, in the Old Testament tabernacle and in the temple, they had an altar there that was the altar of incense. And what you see as you study the the tabernacle and the temple is that those implements that were used in worship there were a kind of a, a picture of what worship is like in heaven. In, in Revelation, we see there's this golden altar of incense before the throne of God, just like there was a golden altar of incense before the veil in the tabernacle and in the temple. But on this, this altar, the altar of incense, they never offered sacrifices except for once. This altar was only used to offer incense up, representing the prayers of God's people except once a year on the Day of Atonement. And that's when the high priest would offer a sacrifice for the sin of the whole nation of Israel. That was the only sacrifice that was offered on that altar of incense. And the sacrifice, that sacrifice, was to appeal to God's mercy to forgive the sins of the nation of Israel. That had to be repeated every year. Okay, and we know Christ was the final sacrifice for our sins, so that doesn't have to be done anymore. But here we have in heaven this altar, which is representing God's mercy in answering prayer, which is representing God's mercy in forgiving sins. And from the middle of this altar in heaven comes the voice proclaiming judgment on the earth. And the picture that we have here is that even in God's judgment, we still find his mercy. 
Because God's judgment is in answer to the prayers of his people claiming the promises of God. He has mercy on those who believe. Now, we've seen believers already. Remember those that God will deliver through this time. Some of them he seals in their foreheads, the 144,000 witnesses. They will remain alive throughout the, the entirety of the tribulation period. Others are killed, the martyrs, but they're still delivered from the torment on earth because he takes them to heaven. And so even in judgment, God demonstrates his mercy in answering prayer. We have to remember that because in times in our lives, sometimes we may go through chastisement at God's hand, but that is God's mercy. Okay? Everything that God gives us, everything that God does for us is part of his mercy because he cares about us. He wants his best for us, not our best. He wants his best because our best is garbage. And in mercy, sometimes he has to put us through trials and suffering To get our attention, as I mentioned last week, God always uses suffering to get our attention, but he wants to get our attention to help us to see what he wants to give us and not what we want, which is bad for us. And when we can see what he wants, that's God's mercy. Now, all of us, he could just destroy in a moment, and he would be justified in that because that's what we deserve. But his mercy is demonstrated over and over and over and over and over in our lives, through salvation specifically, but then every day we see his mercy. Lamentations 3 says his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And we can't forget that even as we look at these horrible judgments that are poured out upon the earth, God's mercy is still there. It never ceases. And so as we get into this ninth, or I'm sorry, into chapter 9 in this sixth uh, trumpet, Verse 13, the voice comes out, and then in verse 14, it says to the sixth angel, which has the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now, I don't know who these four angels are. These may be four new angels that we haven't seen before. Maybe we have. Some commentators have speculated that these four angels Maybe the four demonic spirits that ruled over the four kingdoms in Daniel's dreams, in, Daniel's, in the book of Daniel that we saw. The four kingdoms that came and oppressed Israel through history. We don't know, but it's possible. What we can assume is that these are evil angels. They're fallen angels. They're not good angels that God has bound in the Euphrates. There's no reference in scripture anywhere to God's faithful angels being bound, but there is many references in scripture to fallen angels being bound. And so he says, I want you to loose these four angels in verse 14 that are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now the Euphrates river is significant here. And I want you to focus number one on the fact that these are evil angels that God has bound. Second is the significance of the Euphrates river because the Euphrates river goes all the way back to Genesis. You see the Euphrates River mentioned before the flood, okay? It's been around that long. It's mentioned in Genesis as being in or near the Garden of Eden. So this is an area where sin started with Adam and Eve. What we're talking about is this area of the Euphrates where these angels are bound, the place where sin started, or at least the region where sin started. This was the the scene of the first murder by Abel of his brother Cain 
His brother Cain committed murder against Abel at this place or in this area. This was where organized rebellion against God occurred in Genesis 11 with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, where people wanted to build a tower that reached up to heaven because they thought they were great in themselves. That started here. That happened here. This is where the first war recorded in Scripture happened in Genesis 14, where the four kings attacked Sodom and Gomorrah, took Lot captive, and Abraham and his men had to go save him and recover the bounty that was taken in that war. This is the Euphrates, is the eastern boundary of the promised land to Israel. So Israel's right in the middle of all of this. This is the area around the Euphrates River that was the central location of three of the kingdoms that oppressed Israel. Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. All their kingdoms basically were focused on the Euphrates River. That was the source of their commerce, their water, much of of, uh, their fishing, you know, industry. It focused right on the Euphrates River. In fact, Babylon in King Nebuchadnezzar's time was built on the Euphrates River. The river ran right through the city. Okay? And the story is they diverted, the Persians diverted the, the, the river and came under the wall. And that's how they conquered Babylon. This is the river. Later on in Revelation, we will see Babylon come into focus again, and the Euphrates is mentioned again. And this is the river later on in Revelation as well that the enemies of God will cross to engage in the battle of Armageddon. So this is not just some river. This has been at the center of the focus of the battle of evil against good ever since the beginning of time. And here again, we see it become the focus. God has bound these four angels, these four demons, in this river. And now he says it's time to loose them in this time of judgment. Look at verse 15. This is interesting. The four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. These four angels have been preserved by God and bound in this river for this specific moment. Now, when God created the angels, he knew some of them would fall. When these four angels fell, God already knew that they would be bound. And when he bound them, he knew exactly the moment, not just the approximate time, but the exact moment that they would be released so that he could use them to fulfill his judgment upon the earth in this period of time called the tribulation. They were there to fulfill God's purpose of judgment. And again, God uses demonic forces here to accomplish his plan. We have to keep that in mind. He allows even Satan and his angels to do things that are part of his plan. Think of the greatest crime that was ever committed upon earth. The murder of Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the son of God. In Satan's mind, he may have thought he had victory. He finally has conquered God's plan, has has thwarted God's plan in, in getting rid of his son. And yet it was the greatest crime in the history of mankind that God used to fulfill his greatest purpose in redemption. So... God uses the worst evil on earth as part of his plan. 
even though we may suffer, and let's just say it's not our own problem. It's not our own fault. We're not suffering because of God's chastisement upon us. We suffer maybe, and not maybe, but definitely we all suffer because of other people's sin. Okay? But 1 Peter chapter 3 says, if and if, I'm sorry, but and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Why? Because God's in control. He says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, even when you haven't done anything wrong, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be always ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That always ready to give an answer to people about your faith comes in the context of you suffering because of the evil of other people. And then he says, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you for your good conversation in Christ, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. God uses suffering to fulfill his purpose, even in believers' lives. And it may be evil that's perpetuated at the hands of others, but God can still use it. And if God is sovereign and controls everything, then he can use even the most wicked evil to do what he wants done. And here, he uses the worst of the demons to attack people on earth to fulfill his plan of judgment. And again, we may not comprehend that, but God's ways are so much higher than our ways. We don't have to comprehend it. We just have to accept that it's true and trust him. So God releases these four angels to fulfill his purpose of judgment on the earth. What is the purpose of these angels? Look at the the end of verse 15. To slay a third part of men. To kill one-third of the population that's left on the earth at this point. That is God's purpose. Why would God want people, that many people, to die? Does God want people to die? And we're not talking about believers because, remember, they're protected. This is unbelievers that are going to go to hell. And God says, we're going to loose these demons and they're going to kill one-third of the population of the unbelievers that are left on earth. Well, God doesn't want people to die in their sin. 2 Peter 3.9 says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's made a way for every person to be redeemed, even in the tribulation. These people have a way to be redeemed, to be delivered from the final judgment of hell. God's provided that in Jesus Christ. But God's justice must be fulfilled. In his justice, he must punish sin. That's why Christ died. Somebody had to die for sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what Romans tells us. So somebody has to die for our sin. Jesus did. And for those who submit to him and trust him as Savior, their sins are covered. But for unbelievers, they've chosen to be guilty for their own sin and to take the consequences for it, and so they must die. Not just physically, but spiritually. And so God kills a third of the people through these demonic forces in judgment for their sin. These are unrepentant people. Now, a third of the population, 
That's a lot, okay? That's a lot. Right now, we're estimating 7.5, I don't know the exact number, 7.5 billion people on Earth. You know, if the, if the world continues for another 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years, I don't know, maybe we'll get up to, to 8 billion, who knows? Okay, but think about this, one-third of the population on Earth. Now, first of all, we have to remember, how many Christians were taken up in the rapture from that number? So they're gone. They were gone before all this started. But then back in some of the sealed judgments, God killed one-fourth of the population through natural disasters and pestilence and war and famine. Okay, so one-fourth of the remaining population is already dead. Now another third is killed. That's more than half the people that started in the tribulation are dead at this point. Now, we don't know at what point in the tribulation this is. We know it's in the last three and a half years. So let's just say it's about halfway through. I don't know. So in five years, God kills more than half of the population of the earth. Think about the ramifications of that. I mean, remember, people are worshiping the earth. Their security is in the earth. That's why God destroyed the ecosystems. Their security is in their economy, so God kills their economy. The security is in themselves, so God destroys the people. Anything that's become a god to them, God destroys. God is sending judgment like never before seen on earth. And all of that, now just think about the people who are still alive on earth. Okay, all of that is gone. The ecosystems, the fresh waters uh, damaged tainted, you know, the grass is burned up, a third of the trees are burned up, they're having trouble producing food, and now you have two, three billion dead bodies to deal with. Talk about disrupting human life, because God's trying to get their attention. So these angels kill another third of the population that's left. So more than half the people have died so far on earth. Again, in a very short time period, three to five years. Now, how will those deaths be accomplished? Look at verse 16. The number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand That's 200 million demons. 200 million demons on the earth, all over the place. Inescapable. Now, the earth has just gone through five months torment by demons. We didn't know the number. It just says there's a swarm like locusts. But God numbers these. He says, here's the army that's come to kill one-third of mankind, and it's 200 million demonic forces. And that's an exact number, because look at the end of the verse. John says at the end of verse 16, I heard the number of them. So he's not just guessing here. He's not saying, oh, it's a big army, can't count them all. He says, I heard the number, 200 million. I don't think we can even imagine what 200 million people together in one place would look like. Okay? Okay? Think of 200 million demons scattered all over the earth, killing people, 
And if you were still alive at this point and not protected by the seal of God because you have trusted in him, I think the only thought going through your mind is, am I next? Are they coming after me? 200 million demons, verse 17 says, they're all on horses. And thus I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them. And then he describes the riders of these horses having breastplates of fire and jacinth and brimstone. So he describes these demon riders that the people can see. John's seeing them. The people know they're there. They see this judgment poured out by God through this demonic force. And here's what they look like. They have breastplates of fire, jacinth, and brimstone. Fire is a red color. We all know what fire looks like. Jacinth is dark blue, almost a midnight blue type of blue. And brimstone is a sulfurous yellow. Now, when you take those colors, I mean, and he uses the word fire, but all of those represent fire. I mean, we've all seen blue flame. We've seen yellow flame. We've seen red flame. These are the colors of hell. This is the color of God's torment through burning. And these demons represent in a small way the destruction that awaits people in hell, and they get to have a little taste of that on earth. Even the very colors of hell, of fire. Now, the Bible tells us that hell is going to be completely dark. Okay? So, we won't be able to see those colors anyway, but these colors represent fire, and fire of God's judgment specifically. And then he describes the horses. He says the horses have heads like lions. In verse 17, um, the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. Well, we already had the reference to fire, the colors of fire. Then he, he says here's the, the horses that they ride on. And the horses have heads as lions. Now, he doesn't say the horses had heads of lions. He says as lions. So they're ferocious. They represent something that's as ferocious as a lion. Remember, we talked about the similes and the metaphor last week. It's not exactly that they have a lion head. It's that they represent what a lion could be or is. Okay? So these are not the heads of lions. He's not saying that the riders are monsters, but in some way they represent or resemble the heads of lions. And lions, as you know, if you know anything about lions, are very ferocious. They're the king of the beasts. They stalk their victims. They slaughter them. They go right after the mainstay of life at the neck. They drag them down and then rip their neck apart, basically, so that they bleed to death. That's how lions attack. And he says, here these demonic forces, the horses, have heads like lions. They are there to destroy. And they will stalk their victims. They will come upon them suddenly. And it's not going to be pretty. And he says, out of their mouths issue fire and smoke and brimstone. Now these are the three ways that they kill their victims. They're burned and asphyxiated to death with fire and smoke and brimstone. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, three billion people die. It's another thing to say three billion people die from these demonic forces, and they're burned and asphyxiated to death. Okay, this is not a pretty picture. God did not want it to be a pretty picture, because sin is not pretty, and the judgment for sin is not pretty. 
In verse 20, in fact, God describes these death, the smoke, I'm sorry, the death by smoke and fire and brimstone. He says these are plagues. And plagues are always in reference to God's judgment. It's this catastrophe coming from the hand of demons that destroys a third of the earth's population, a plague from God in his judgment. And each one of these, the, the fire, the smoke, the brimstone, is used by the demons here. They're characteristic of the suffering that will take place in hell. Now go back through Bible history, if you will. Just think of God's judgment on certain people. Okay, In the land of Israel, there were people that rebelled against God, Nadab and Abihu. Okay, they were Aaron's sons. They were just beginning the, uh, the service of worship in the, in the tabernacle at that time. And the Bible says that they offered strange fire upon the altar. They didn't do it God's way. And immediately, fire came out of the altar and consumed them. God judged them in fire. Sodom and Gomorrah. What did God use against Sodom and Gomorrah? He rained fire down from heaven. Okay? And so here we see God uses fire again in an extreme way, like it's never been used before on earth anyway, to destroy a third of the earth, coming from, literally, the hand of these demonic forces. Verse 17 says, Their power is in their mouth and their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents. I'm sorry, verse 18. Uh, Go to verse 18. By these three, the third part of men was killed by the fire, the smoke, by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. Now, when we try to put this picture in our heads, we may say, okay, well, what do we have or know of that could be something like this in modern warfare? Okay? And I've heard a lot of people say, well, look, this is a perfect picture of, of nuclear war. Okay? This is atomic bombs going off, fire, brimstone. I mean, that makes sense, right? People are incinerated, the smoke, the, the acrid smell, the poisonous gas, the radiation, all of that. I mean, it could uh, render this effect. It's possible. It's possible, okay? But this is not the, the Chinese army coming with nuclear warheads, okay? This is demonic forces released against people on the earth by God, okay? That's very clear. Will they use something that looks like modern nuclear warfare? Possibly. But did God use and need modern nuclear warfare to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? No. And so when God gives these demons power to destroy these men, one-third of the earth's population, and gives them the power through fire and brimstone smoke, I'm going to take it for what it says. I mean, it could be nuclear warfare, but God doesn't need nuclear warfare. He uses what he uses. He's a creator of all. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need our devices to accomplish his purpose. And so it's fire, brimstone, and smoke. And it's used to destroy a third of the, of the people still on earth. But remember, there are people who are believers, 144,000 witnesses, others who have been saved, still alive, not affected by this, protected. Just like in Egypt, The night the death angel came over and God said, put the blood on the door, on the posts and on the lintel above, and anybody who's under the blood I will spare, will pass over you. That's where Passover came from. In the ten plagues in Egypt, before that happened, those plagues did not affect Israel. They affected the Egyptians. 
And so here, God renders judgment in an extreme way upon men on the earth, but his believers are spared. They're delivered, protected from that. They don't have to go through that. So even after a third of the rest of the population of the earth is destroyed, there's still people on earth alive, not just believers, not just the 144,000 witnesses, but there's unbelievers who will survive this. And look at verse 20, and here's the saddest part of this whole scenario. It says, The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. Okay, we've just described, and we've seen in chapters 8 and chapter 9, even going back to chapter 6, where the seals were starting to be opened, all of this destruction and judgment that God has brought upon the earth, all of this death and suffering. And these people that he's talking about here in verse 20, the rest of men which were not killed by these plagues, they have seen this and experienced it all firsthand, and they're still surviving They have been tormented by demons for five months, and they're still surviving. And they still ignore God's warning. What lengths does God have to go through or to to get people's attention? I can't think of anything more severe than this. And yet, they don't believe They don't repent. God allows this unbelievable suffering and death as his judgment on sin, but it's to remind people from whom this judgment comes. This is not just an act of demonic forces that's uncontrolled. This comes from the hand of God. This is part of God's plan. And he wants them to repent. To see the judgment on earth that sin brings and repent so they don't have to experience eternal judgment. It's going to be a million times worse than what this is in hell forever. And they won't pay attention. None of those who survive up to this point will repent and turn to him. Now, again, there's still believers that are sealed, but anybody who's an unbeliever, who survives through this point, their hearts are hardened. They absolutely refuse to acknowledge God. They absolutely refuse to repent. Go over to Romans chapter 1 very quickly. Because I want you to see, this is not new, okay? It's not an extreme situation that we see in the tribulation. Oh, this is the ultimate evil, okay? This is mankind, Because this happens all the time. Happens from the very beginning of sin. And this is the way men's hearts are. Go to chapter 1 in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 1 in Romans. Okay, starting at verse 19. It says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. So God has revealed to mankind himself. It goes on in verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Look at the last phrase. 
So they are without excuse. No one can come to God at the final judgment and say, well, I didn't know. I didn't realize that was you, God. God has made himself known to people all through history. Everyone, even atheists, know that there is a God. They may deny that, but that's just the hardness of their own hearts. Look at verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Let's just put the word Darwinian evolution there, okay? Where did all mankind come from? Well, everything came from this primordial ooze that came out of the Big Bang, and then over millions of years it all evolved. And all, all of the smart people in the world know that's how it took place, right? You're not going to believe some fairy tale from Genesis, are you? Their foolish heart, or I'm sorry, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds, to four-footed beasts, to creeping things. Here's the things they worship. Not just idols, by the way. This is anything that is the creation rather than the creator. Verse 24, therefore, or wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God gave them over to what they wanted. You want to sin? Okay, I'll let you live in your sin, and you'll experience the consequences of that sin. Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was meet. That's talking about homosexuality. That is the result of perverted thinking, and it's a rebellion against God in every form. That's what God turns men over to when they don't want to obey him. Verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And look at the list, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. That's the definition of an unsaved person who has no interest in God. That's what their life is defined as. And then look at verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God. They know God will judge their sin. They know it. No one can deny that they don't know that. God says they know it. Knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. How do they respond? Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This was written by Paul. Back when the church was first started, he's talking in past tense. And so this is people that were alive before him, probably going all the way back to Adam and Eve. The fact that they won't repent in chapter 9 of Revelation 
It's not some extreme anomaly that happens because of the extreme wickedness that human nature has evolved into during the tribulation period. This is what men are. That's why Jesus Christ died. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their theft. Now, look at the list in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, very quickly. He says, they don't repent of the work of their hands. I like that phrase. They don't repent of the work of their hands. What would that include? Anything we do for ourselves. Anything we think we did by ourselves. Anything we do for our own purpose. Anything we think we can do to gain favor with God so he'll let us into heaven. They repent not of the work of their hands. He specifically talks about idols here. That they should not worship devils and idols of gold, silver, and brass, and stone of wood. He says they worship devils. Now, any kind of idol worship is Satan worship. Any kind. And it doesn't have to be a statue that's set in a little alcove in your wall that you bow down to every day. It could be your bank account that you bow down to every day. It could be a new car that you spend more time with than the time with people of God. It could be anything that you make an idol in your life. Anything that you put your security in rather than in God. Here he says, they repented not. They still did their own stuff. They still worshiped their own gods. And in doing so, he says, they worshiped devils. Because any idolatrous worship is worship of Satan. How do we worship God? Here's your mini lesson for in the middle of this, okay? How do we worship God? And people will say, well, we come to church once a week, right? We put our time in, we sing, we pray, we listen to the message, we go home. That's how we worship God. No, that's not how you worship God, okay? The Bible doesn't say that's defined as worship. It can be part of your worship, but your worship is in spirit and in truth. John 4, that's what Jesus said. Those were his words. In spirit and in truth. Therefore, our worship of God happens all the time as Christians, whether we're at home, whether we're at work, whether we're at church. So if we're something different at home and at work than we are at church, are we truly worshiping even at church? Because worship is a consistent pattern of thought and of character and of the heart rather than just a consistent pattern of action. If we do not worship God, then, with our lives, it's not that we're just not worshiping. It's that we worship Satan. He says they worship devils when they do their own thing, when they have their own idols, when they want their own way. They worship devils. And so by bowing to Satan's purpose in that, do what pleases you. Live your own life. Have your own goals. Throw God in there, because you have to do that. But enjoy your life. We worship devils. And that's what these people did. They worshiped devils because they didn't want God. Even in the most extreme suffering, God is trying to get their attention. And they're so committed in their sin, in their heart, that they still refuse to acknowledge God. 
What will it take for God to get people's attention? Billions of people killed. The earth basically destroyed for all productive purposes. The economy wiped out. Natural disasters happening all around them. They know it's from God. And they still won't repent. John MacArthur said, under the influence of the massive demon forces, the world will descend into a morass of false religion, murder, sexual perversion, and crime unparalleled in human history. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not removed, but he's removed his hand of restraint. And so evil is just allowed to run rampant. And now it's not that men become more evil. It's now that the evil of men's hearts now is on public display in its fullness. Jude says that the day the Lord will come, he will come one day to execute judgment upon all, to convict them of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is that judgment. And they still don't repent. And that's why in the book of Jude, he goes through this description of God's judgment, of the unrepentance of man's heart, and he says this to us, and of some having compassion making a difference. Have compassion on people like this to make a difference in their lives. And others, verse 23, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Pulling them out of the fire, Jude says. What fire? You're looking at it here, the beginning of it in Revelation chapter 9. If Christ comes back in our lifetime, there are people that you know right now in your life that will go into the tribulation and suffer what we're studying here. As a believer, I don't know how that we could wish that upon anybody. And that's why God says, pull them out of the fire. We have the only lifeline that they're going to get. The same gospel of Jesus Christ that saved us and is going to deliver us to heaven can save them. Do we have compassion making a difference, pulling people out of the fire? God's going to spare from this extreme judgment all those who believe because all of us who are true believers are going to be in heaven. Rapture is going to happen. We're going to go up before any of this starts. So God will deliver us. And God will even deliver some through the tribulation and protect them that believe him. Not all. I mean, we see millions that are going to die as martyrs. But the worst part is that all this suffering on earth during the great tribulation will pale in comparison to the suffering that's going to take place in hell. And yet, the majority of believers in the Church of Christ today really doesn't care a whole lot based on our actions and how we live that millions of people, billions of people are going to end up going through this suffering on earth and then end up in hell anyway. Because if we did, we would live differently. And so here's the question that I want to leave you with today. Number one, will you be spared from this judgment, an eternal judgment, because you're trusting Christ? And number two... If so, what are you doing now to keep others from having to go through this? 
Do we really care about people enough to give them the key to be delivered from that? Hell's going to be a hundred times worse, but I wouldn't want anybody to go through this. Who has God brought into your life right now so you can pull them out of the fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, you can't save them, but you can give the message. And that's what we're called to be, light and salt on the earth. And so as we read Revelation, as we read about God's judgment, that's the thing that we need to remember. It's, yeah, it's interesting to see all the details of God's judgment during the Great Tribulation. You know, if you're not a believer and you, you, see, you hear this, it's like, I should be afraid. As a believer, we can rejoice that we're not going to be delivered from that, but we should also grieve that there's billions of people that are going to go through it. But time is running out, and we have lost dying people all around us that are going to have to experience this firsthand and in person. And so what are we doing now to pull these people out of the fire? Christ is coming. There's an urgency, people. And it's not just an urgency for us to be ready ourselves. It's an urgency to help others be ready. That's why we're here. We're here to finish the work of Jesus Christ. Are we doing that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. And as, even as we see this extreme judgment that's upon the earth, Lord, it should embolden us and encourage us to be more diligent in spreading the gospel to those who need to hear it. It should help us to be focused on the things that are important in our lives, to worship you in our testimony, in our personal lives, in the time we have alone, to become the people of God that you want us to be so that we might be the example to others, the foundation of the gospel so they might be ready to hear the truth. And Lord, help us not to fail in that purpose. Forgive us for missing opportunities in the past. Help us to see the opportunities now that we have before all of this starts. Thank you that you will deliver us, but help us to have the compassion on others so that they can be delivered as well. Lord, help us not to forget your word, but to meditate on it so that it makes us think the way we ought to think and makes us live the way we ought to live and so that you get the glory in everything in our lives. Thank you again for your word, the things that you've taught us today, and help us now to be doers and not hearers only, so that you might get the glory in everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 424 is our closing hymn today, Send the Light, a challenge for us as believers, hearing about the judgment of God that's coming, and that ha- there's no question about that. It is coming. It's just when, but we need to be sending the light to those who need to have the light given to them. Let's stand and sing together. Send the light. This is a challenge to all of us as we go today.